Okay, well, it's about that time. So let's go ahead and uh, get a start with our program tonight here. Uh, let me see here. Who, need, who looks like they need to pray here? Um, Kim, would you open this? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight, Lord, to uh, study your word. And thank you for uh, uh, Mark and the lessons he brings us and, and the clarity and, and uh, what he teaches. Uh, Lord, be with us. Open our minds, our hearts to your word tonight. For we ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's go ahead and uh, review these answers here. People who fail to have children are disobedient to the dominion mandate. True or false? Okay, what would you say? People who refuse. I'm sorry? I don't know. I wasn't here that last week, but I'm guessing that. People who refuse to have children? Okay, I mean, there, there is a point here in which, in which some, some reasons for not propagating probably are a violation of the Dominion Mandate, but certainly we don't want to say that anybody who doesn't procreate is somehow in violation of the uh, Dominion Mandate. Some, some sort of can't, you know, for physical reasons or something, and you don't have to feel guilty because it's not an individual mandate. What is it? Yeah, the corporate or racial. Uh, yeah, so the whole race is responsible for this, uh, not each person individually. Um, so, uh, and you know, some would argue that we've succeeded in filling the earth, but uh, as we suggested last week, that's probably not uh, the the response we should take. Uh, that there is a responsibility to continue uh, to fill the earth, and even perhaps. Uh, to take something of an inflationary view of of uh, human population in general. Okay? Thoughts? Any questions? Okay. Mankind's obligation to work is a result of the fall and the curse. False. 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 Yeah, there's really no explanation there other than that. You know, Adam was there tilling the garden and working hard, subduing the earth, ruling over everything that lived and moved and breathed on the earth. Uh, that was his responsibility. Uh, before there was a fall, before there was a curse, curse makes things difficult. Uh, so work does become more difficult as a result of the curse. But the work itself, work properly, proper is part of the expectation that God has of all persons in every age. And so we shouldn't uh, run from it. Number three, in view of the dominion mandate, the church has a responsibility not only to carry out the Great Commission, but also to address social problems like the abuse of the environment, disaster relief, and other sins perpetrated in the natural realm. Okay. How would, how would you make it true? I think you're supposed to help people that are in need. Okay. Uh, there's there's one word that you can change. Do you think it's the obligatory the part of it? Like where? Responsibility the church? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so what word should, should I put in there? It's an individual. Yes. Humanity in God's image have the responsibility to address social problems like abuse of the environment, disaster relief, other sins perpetrated in the natural realm. So I think if we just change that one word, it all suddenly, it suddenly becomes true. 
okay? And so I think, the, the, and, the, and, the, and what we tried to sort of stress last time, it's not that it's bad to do those things, but it's bad to make that the mission of the organized and institutional church, because uh, history has told us over and over again, when the church, the organized church has has delved into those kinds of things, there's there's tremendous distraction that always takes place, and, and what suffers is the gospel, okay? And so, you change that one word, makes it, makes it, makes it great. Uh, but, uh, uh, so again, I'm not trying to say don't do those things. It's just not as an organized church, yeah. Uh, what about some of these programs that church sponsor, like for the homeless, feeding the homeless? Yeah. Uh, that kind of, I mean, those are good things, but yeah. that's not, many times these people are not even responsive to the gospel. They're sure. just there to. Yeah, well, a couple things we can say. Um, one, there is something of a, a muddy middle ground when we're talking about the kinds of things we can do in order to create opportunities for the gospel. Okay, and there's always going to be debate on that: how far one can go, or or, or such. Um, I'm inclined to think that uh, you know spending large sums of money in order to have opportunities for the gospel probably is not the gen- generally the best use of resources. You know, to all kinds of funds and, and foods and, and all of that. Um, but but obviously we are doing having events. I mean, you've got events here. You've got golf outings and cloud king dinners, and I don't know what the girls do, but you're 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 doing things in order to create opportunities for the gospel. And so I don't have a I don't I, and there is so there is that muddy middle ground and that that's in in the middle there. But the but the idea of the church assuming the responsibilities to say feed the generally hungry does not seem to be part of the mission of the church. That's a civil responsibility. First I mean first first line of defense if somebody's hungry is is family, you know. Second line of defense is your neighbors. Okay? I think a third line of defense is is the organized conglomerate which we call human government. Okay? It I I don't think the church fits in that properly, um, and when we attempt to, you know, take over civil kinds of responsibilities, inevitably the, the gospel suffers. So, um, obviously, if you're going to do that for the poor in your midst, you've got ample biblical uh, warrant for that. Okay, uh, but as far as sort of doing that generally for those without, there does not seem to be much of a biblical precedent for it. And historical reason to hesitate. So, last question then, and sort of fed right into that. Which of the following was suggested as the best approach to the relationship of the church to culture? Uh, well, we've got a lot of answers here. Well, I'm glad we didn't have any of the A's and E's because those are the those are the polar extremes. The Christ of culture approach is basically anything that the culture does, you can sort of use to win them because culture is 
is good. Uh, if you want to have a survivor night in the, in the uh, in, in, for instead of church, uh, that's 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 well and good. I mean, it'll get people in. Expose them. No, okay. The, the Christ of gospel, the Christ, the Christ against culture is sort of the opposite. We sort of said that's sort of like the Amish approach, uh, where you just completely cut yourself off from culture at all on basis on the basis of the fact that culture is bad. So therefore, we should, you know, put a wall up between us and that. And of course, uh, that's <laughs> that's problematic when we're trying to share the gospel if we have no contact with unbelievers, among other things. But then those three in the middle probably are the ones that are the the hardest to distinguish. The transforming culture uh, we we suggest is kind of like the post millennial idea of the say especially in the nineteenth century where the church is trying to transform culture and to make it what it is is supposed to be, and the church is at the forefront of that. So, you know, the, the church is building hospitals, the church is building orphanages, the church is supplying people for the Supreme Court, and, and, and so on and so forth. And that, we, we su- suggested, was an excess, uh, you know, it going past the mission of the church. Okay. So... Uh, Obviously, there is some transformation that takes place inevitably in culture when Christians start to people culture, but that's incidental. It's not. It's not something that's a, an organized function of the church to transform its own culture. Uh, the above culture we had suggested was kind of like the Roman Catholic approach, um, where the idea is to bring as many people under the aegis of the church as possible, uh, particularly through baptism of infants, catechizing small children. So get as many people into the building as possible, under the auspices as possible, and then sort of nurture them into the faith. And, uh, of course, we suggested that that doesn't really work well for uh, the biblical approach to the church as a community of regenerate believers. Obviously, we are trying to convert our children, and we are trying to catechize them and share the gospel with them. But uh, the the excesses that we see in Romanism is, is really what we're trying to avoid with the Christ above culture approach, which left us then with the Christ and culture, uh, and culture in paradox, which is was supposed to be the right answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> letter C. Uh, and the, the idea here, we're borrowing here from John 17, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. Okay, And that's something of a paradox, and it's a very difficult, and it's a difficult balance, balancing uh, act to perform. Uh, but that's the expectation we have, and so that that's what I anticipated for, for the answer. So, letter C. Okay. Follow up. Okay. Okay. Uh, With a a bit of luck here tonight, we might be able to finish this first section. I Um, do have a question. Yeah. Um, Sunday, one of the single ladies at the church, they listened to the podcast. Uh They felt like um, you were saying she'd never been married, Uh never been asked, and she felt... Like uh, the way she was listening to the uh, class, that it's not almost like she was sinning because she wasn't married. That's what she said. No, I, I, and, and I, I, I did try and sort of stave off that, but I probably didn't do it 
as successfully as I wanted to. Obviously, a one person cannot determine of themselves to marry. I, obviously, men have a little bit more of a more of a, in some sense, a say, at least in our culture, probably less so than it used to be, but uh, where, where men are sort of the arbiters of, 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 of marriages. Um, so I, I, my, my comments are probably directed more towards those who are able to effect that. At the same time, I think there's also a tendency... Uh, men and women alike in our day to postpone um, and and I, I don't think we want to be part of that that sort of movement to postpone marriage or have experimental relationships uh, leading up to marriage uh, these are the kinds of things that I think are destructive of the uh, of the of the dominion so, so no, it's not. Yeah, we we see in scripture there are some people who are single, and with God's blessing, um, and we also have people who are single for no reason of their you know no fault of their own. Just they just have you know they've not been able to find the person, or that person's not found them as the case may be. Uh, at the same time, I don't think we should be trying to avoid it either. And so, you know, maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't, uh, I know it's a sensitive topic here, because uh, probably, it's, there's probably more women in the world who want to get married than men who will have them. So I, 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 I do get that. Uh, uh, at the same time, it's something I think that we as a society should do what we can to to encourage his, his marriage and so okay so point number seven here on page 28 and my apologies to whoever it was who happens to be listening and is perhaps listening tonight <laughs> so. <laughs> so point seven here the freedom of the will talking about the uh, uh, doctrine of man here, and I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. We'll we'll touch on this again when we call, talk to the doctrine of sin. The next two points, in fact, in our outline, sort of our bridge topics to the next uh, our next topic, which is the doctrine of sin. It's hard to it's hard to divorce the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin uh, because they're very closely linked together. But let's start here by talking about freedom of the will. Some of this is summary of what we've already said, um, so I'm, I'm going through it fairly speedily, but, but halt me if, if something here doesn't make sense or if you don't remember the discussion. First, we said man is a moral agent. Okay, That's, that's part of the image of God in man. Uh, volition is one of the functions of personality uh, that mankind shares with God uh, as part of the image. So man's endowed with the power to make ethical choices and to perform corresponding actions within God's created realm. And this agency is not illusory. It's real. Uh, it, it, uh, this is one of the tensions, of course, that comes up with the freedom of the will. Uh, if God, in fact, is sovereign, do we really have any freedom at all? 
uh, because we're just going to do whatever he has planned for us to do. So are we just puppets in the hands of an angry God? Uh, no, we have free agency, and this agency is real. It's not an illusion. Secondly, mankind are responsible moral agents. God propositionally communicates to mankind certain responsibilities, obligations, consequences, and equips us with the conscience that communicates moral ought. And that's what a conscience is, right? Conscience is this mechanism with which God created us that give us a sense of moral ought. I ought to do this, I ought not to do this. So our consciences are alternately accusing us or defending us, Paul says in Romans. Okay, uh, So it's more than just desire, it's a sense of ought, an awareness of obligation, and a corresponding awareness of God's approval or guilt in the face of actions. We find this very clearly stated in Romans 1 and 2. That you know, Paul gives this long list of sins that people commit, and wraps it up by saying, "And even though people know that these things are wrong, and they know that uh, that there's going to be judgment because of them, they not only do the same, but also give approval to others who do it." And uh, then uh, later on in chapter two, uh, there's a discussion here of the conscience. Uh, 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 that that says that uh, we have the law of God written upon our hearts, uh, which you know lets us know when we are doing something right and when we're doing something specifically that is that is wrong. So we have we not only have agency, we also have a responsibility attached to that moral agency. We are also free moral agents, and we've taken a new step here. Um, Responsibility, I say here, is predicated on freedom. If someone doesn't have freedom, you can't really hold them responsible for not doing what they're supposed to do or doing what they're not supposed to do if they don't have the freedom to do otherwise. Yes? I'm going to ask maybe a stupid question. Did we cover this section? Yeah. We did already? Yeah, I got it. Oh, I'm sorry. Where, where did we end up? We ended 30. We paid all the way to 30. 30. Oh, boy. Well, there we go. Which was that? Oh, okay. Okay, 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 yeah. So, yes. Okay, let's, let's yeah, I, I think uh, now I remember now we ended with that. Sorry, I didn't remember that correctly. Okay, so free agency does not conflict with divine certainty is our point that's being made. We'll slow down because John Murray is a little bit of a dense writer, but what he writes is just usually quite good. Uh, so so what the point that we're trying to demonstrate by that quote here from John Murray is uh, that human freedom and d- divine sovereignty do not conflict. Okay, So the difference between divine freedom and sovereignty as we're defining it here is that God being sovereign has freedom to act according to the dominant impulse of his nature Okay, and furthermore there's nothing outside of him that can stop him from doing it Okay, so we do have freedom in that we do make choices in accordance with our, the dominant impulses of our nature. Um, 
and we act upon those choices, nonetheless, we all recognize that sometimes we're stopped from doing what we'd like to do. You know, you know I, I might make the choice uh, to, to buy a specific vehicle uh, that's well outside of my price range, and I might want it. It might correspond to the dominant impulse of my nature to want that vehicle. At the same time, I recognize that there may be forces at play that say, no, you can't do that. Uh, it's, it's not, we wouldn't be responsible for you to do that. So I'm not sovereign. Nonetheless, I have freedom, okay? And freedom is that which makes it possible uh, for God to make demands of us and then hold us responsible uh, for, uh, for fulfilling what we're supposed to do, okay? So the argument is sometimes made that human freedom de- uh, denies divine sovereignty. That is, if man has the power of choice in time, then God could not ever have possibly ordained man's free actions. That's what Arminianism teaches. Okay, That's really the heart of it. Okay, that God uh, is uh, that in, in some sense. We are the sovereign. We're the ones who decide, and God is the one who simply observes what we do and sort of manipulates around us um, or, or something of that nature. Perhaps God does not even know uh, what they're going to be. This is the view of open theism. So in, in Arminianism, God looks down the quarters of time and sees what people are going to do and sort of makes his plan around it. Uh, where an open theism takes the next step and says God can't even look down the corners of time. So he's basically making good guesses about what we're going to do next based on what he knows about us. Uh, Now some Calvinists, I say here, reacting to these two, which I would understand to be unbiblical alternatives, deny human freedom entirely. And perhaps you've come across folks who say, no, man does not have a free will at all. We, we're, and, and what ends up happening is we, we people are reduced to puppets. They're just marionettes on the ends of the strings that God is God is moving above the uh, stage here, and we just simply do whatever God tells us to do, God forces us to do. Okay, this mistake, the mistake in this logic is mistaking sovereignty for freedom. While it's true that sovereignty would render, human sovereignty would be a problem for divine sovereignty. Human freedom does not conflict with it. And here's what John Murray says here. The answer to this problem, this question, the answer is that although we are not able to analyze the relationships of God's foreordination and human agency so that we can discover and perceive the perfect concursus that it obtains. So, you know, we can't we can't figure out all of the details, all the ins and outs as as to how that all fits together. Yet, we can at least say something. Yet we must maintain both without any infringement upon the province, reality and integrity of each. Okay? God must remain sovereign. Man must remain free. Those two things cannot be denied. Okay, so whatever our explanation is has to include those two elements. The foreknowledge of God presupposes certainty of occurrence. Okay, so 
Uh, when we see that God foreknows or foreordains things, it means they of necessity will happen. They must happen. Perhaps I should use the old English word shall happen, which is sort of a combination of will and must happen. Okay. His foreordination renders all occurrences certain. By his providence, what is foreordained is inalterably put into effect. Only within the realm of all-inclusive providence is our free agency a fact. And only thus is it maintained. Okay, So it's only within that scope, that sphere of divine providence whereby he is working out all things to the ends he has uh, uh, intended here. Only in that context... Do we actually have free agency? In God, we live and move and choose, if I can say, and have our being. Providence in fulfillment of foreordained purpose is not only compatible with the freedom indispensable to our being, it is indispensable to the existence of our freedom and never functions so as to interfere with it. Let me see if I can give an illustration of that. Why do you pray? We should be we should be thankful that we're here to exist for another day. So, so to express gratitude, but but you're you're often often expressing requests, right? Okay, what are you what are you attempting to to accomplish with that? Trying to conform God's will to your own. Okay, but yes, yeah. I mean, you're trying to you you are trying to see where you know where what God is doing and trying to live in conformity to that. But is that is that all you're trying to do? When you pray, are you just trying to change yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, you should be, but okay, you do yes. God's will. Yeah. Right, you should, yeah, you should be, your attitude and the goal of your prayer should be for you to say at the end of the day, thy will be done. But is that the only reason you pray? You to change something. you? You, you want something. Okay, you yeah, want you, you something. Want okay, so you want something. Now, are you praying to change God's mind? You might be. Mm. I mean, say if somebody's going to die and you don't want them to die, and you're praying and praying that they don't die, and then they die anyway. Okay. Hoping that okay, God but, change his mind. But does God ever change his mind? No. No. Okay. So when you pray, you're not praying to where, well, perhaps you, you, you may be praying to change God's mind, but you won't. <laughs> <laughs> getting what you want. So when you pray, you're not praying to change God's mind. What you're doing is you're praying the desire of your heart. I would like a solution. Yeah. Like a solution to a problem in your life. Yeah, a solution to the problem. I, you know, I pray for so and so to get better, and I'm hoping they get better. If it's your will. If it's your will, right? But but the fact is, you're praying the desire of your heart. Okay. Now, are you trying? You're not trying to change God's mind. Nonetheless, we recognize that your prayer is part of that foreordination of all things. Okay? Now, let's let's back up here and say, you know, thinking as God does. Okay? God is planning everything. He's got, he's got everything planned. All the details. Everything fits all together in a tremendously networked plan. Okay? And one of the things perhaps he wants to do is heal Aunt Jenny. Okay? 
Okay, but she's not doing very well. Okay. But he has ordained that she will get better, and he has also ordained in his sovereignty that one of the means whereby Aunt Jenny is going to get better is the prayers of God's saints, your prayers. Okay, You're not trying to change God's mind, but you are praying the earnest desire of your heart. You're, you're praying freely and earnestly for something to happen. And, in fact, what you are doing is part of that providential outworking that God has for all things. So he not only, that's sort of a phrase we sometimes hear, he not only ordains the ends, he also ordains the means. So like Hezekiah. And one of the means is prayer, yes. So I think that's effectively what Murray is saying in there. Okay, It's only within the sphere of God having ordained all things absolutely from the foundation of the world that your freedom actually is exercised and it's actually true freedom that's exercised within that. I don't know if that does that follow. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing happens with with uh, with evangelism, right? Okay, you you can't force something to happen. And so you're 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 doing something, sharing the gospel, knowing that nothing that you can do is actually going to compel faith. And yet you recognize that what you are doing is necessary to faith. I mean, you, people can't believe without being taught, right? Right. And so you recognize that in that in that grand context of all God is doing. God is the one who saves people, and God has determined who's elect, and God has determined who's going to be saved, and yet you are a participant of that, a free participant in that process. And you must be in order for it to, to happen. You will. You must and you will, because God has ordained it that way. Uh, does that, does that, that follow? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think oftentimes when we pray, I think we... Um, often understand that we're not changing the mind of God, but we are acknowledging His ability, His power. Yes. We're submitting to that sure. power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but but when you but when you pray, you're you are doing more than trying to change yourself. Right. You are actually praying with the expectation that, as Elijah says, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does. Something. It accomplishes something. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a question sometimes about what, what it does accomplish. And I think basic, really basic to our humanness and, and being the image bearers of God is that it is, in its most simple form, it's about submission and intimacy with him. Because he's, he is the one with all the power. Right. Yeah, no doubt about that. Yes. The prayer also, I believe when we pray, according to God wants us to pray, and then he answers it, he gets the glory for it too. It's all, you know, part of the two, not just a sock and bow, but, you know, right. you're a danger for a lot of reasons, I think. Yeah. And, 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 and we don't like to think in these terms, but the opposite is true too. Okay? So a person who is not one of the elect, you know, who has not been elected before the foundation of the world. And we know that that person is going to end up 
in the lake of fire. We don't, but God does. So, do we blame him for this? No, 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 because he's orchestrating a network of the free acts of persons who freely choose to reject God. And, and I, I think we've got to have that in order for there to be true responsibility and true justice on God's part. Okay? And so it's within that network of God sovereignly ordaining all things that true freedom is allowed to thrive. That's what that's what Murray's saying. So yeah, that's that last sentence. I'm trying to yeah. Name purpose is not only compatible with the freedom indispensable to our being, it is indispensable to the existence of our freedom. Yeah, we, we could not have freedom were God not sovereign, I think is what he's saying. Um, it, it, it is God's sovereignty that grants us, it, it, that's part of what God grants to us in his sovereignty, okay. is our freedom. And we could not have it otherwise. Freedom with the outcome is already determined. True. Right? And with the sense of, like, if I've got a big choice to make and I'm praying for the right decision or whatever, and I make a choice, that's the, in a sense, that's the only choice that was ever going to get made. No matter what. I mean, I'm true. You know true. But, it, but, it, but it's a genuine choice. Yeah. But God has the long view, is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like, right. that's the, Phil was always going to make that choice at that moment. But I don't know. It doesn't make it any less your choice right. that that was. In eternity past, ordained to be the choice we're going to make, doesn't make it any less your choice. So we act freely within God's inalterable plan. Yes. I'm trying to think of the simplest way I can put it. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> but I think that's I think that's because I've had conversations like that with folks before. I think sometimes that is a hard pill to swallow. Sure. Especially people are like, wait a minute, like I, yes, I could have done the other thing. I could have done this, or I could have done that, or. If God already knows what's going to happen anyway, what's he used to me praying? You know, and I think that, you know, the conversation we were just having, there's a lot more to it than just, I'm not trying to influence the outcome. Or if I can get 20 people to pray for this, then maybe, you know, maybe they took the scales in my favor. I don't think it, you know what I mean? I think sometimes that is, it's hard for some people to get over that hump. Right. And acknowledge that they don't have an influence on the outcome necessarily. Right. But, but once you get past the hump, the, the, the amazing nature of the providence of God just blossoms out to know that when you were driving down the road and that squirrel went, That's right. <laughs> you knew which way you could go. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And it makes and it makes and it makes a, it's great. Know, it is great. And it has a and it has a and it has a ripple effect. Yes. You know, whether you swerve this way or that way or hit somebody. Or, you know. yeah, so yeah. So and it all fits together. Within a within a, within a huge network of God ordaining all things uh, from the beginning. Right. You were saying that you know, man's freedom, man cannot break God for his sin, for his ultimate um, I mean, could somebody conversely say that if man doesn't have freedom? That he could blame God? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think freedom is necessary to responsibility and justice. Well, first, John, you know, it says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Sometimes I think that prayer 
you're, you're kind of trying to discover the will of God in, in that sense. You know, and there's there's a sense in which you you are, but I mean, prayer by definition is asking God for things. I mean, if, if we if we put it down there, what petition is? It's asking God for things. I think sometimes we we all we sometimes can get so pious that we say, oh no, no I'm not really asking. What? Well, yeah, <laughs> if you're not asking for something, well, then you're not really praying. Right. There's nothing wrong with that, John. Says, right. You know, you, you know, you have not because you ask. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Thank you. Yeah. So now we're up to, up to the fall of man into into sin. We didn't get very far, but I, but in my mind I did because I thought we had to start two pages ago. So we <laughs> got two pages done. <laughs> so the fall of man into sin. Man, of course, did not remain in his original state. He used the freedom that God has given to him to heed an external suggestion. The reason I call it an external suggestion is he has no sin nature at this point. He's got nothing inside of him saying sin, 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 like we do. Okay, So it's an external suggestion here to violate God's moral decree. And as we shall see... Uh, the guilt for man's sin does not lie outside of men, however. It's inside of him. Adam and sin, Adam and Eve sinned willingly and with full knowledge. Yeah, when they did get it, they ran with it. Oh, they sure did. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's see if we can't uh, um, look at the test itself and the temptation. And as we do this, um, sort of Sort of keep in the back of your mind what's going on at the temptation of Jesus Christ, Book of John, right? Okay, because I think this is this is probably the closest place uh, where we see the first and second Adam side by side in, in contrast, right? Okay, so so we're going to be talking about what Adam does, but in the back of your mind, think about what Jesus does because he does exactly the opposite at every point of what Adam does, because Jesus is our second Adam, our representative. Okay, so the test, firstly, the time of it. Don't know exactly how long uh, the creation remained very good uh, before it became very bad. Uh, We know it's at least day eight, because everything pauses on the seventh day, because everything's very good, and there's a day of reflection, um, and it was holy. But since the regular pattern of God of walking and talking with Adam had been established in Genesis 3, 8. Uh, we, we, we find that this that the language is such uh, that this was a, this was something that he did routinely. Uh, God walked with Adam and Eve. What would have been marvelous conversations. You always wonder what exactly was said in that in those times, but he's having these conversations. So it probably was at least a few days after the creation. The absolute terminus ad quem for the temptation was the conception of Cain. Cain could not have been conceived in this perfected state or else he would have been conceived and born a perfected child and we know that didn't happen. So we don't know exactly how long that was. We don't know how soon it was that Cain was born. Seth was born when Adam was 130 but that was after Cain and Abel had grown to adulthood and uh, apparently had populated the earth uh, substantially already at that point. Okay, so 
uh, sometime before the conception of Cain. And the test probably came shortly after the creation because it's unlikely that God would have left them in this unconfirmed limbo state for a very long period of time. Perhaps we have as our example the angels uh, who were all also created very good. They had their own test. Uh, Satan had his test early on. He failed rather quickly and is confirmed. He becomes then one of the non-elect angels, and we would understand that the uh, the rest of the angels, uh, you know, took sides rather quickly. Okay, so probably we have the same kind of timetable. What was the purpose of this test then? Well, it was designed to give Adam experiential knowledge of right and wrong in the face of moral options. Okay? So, Adam, by obeying, ideally, would have been confirmed in holiness and would have understood by experience what it means to obey from the standpoint of obedience. The the alternative was, of course, the risk that's incurred here, is that he might choose to experience this idea of right and wrong from the standpoint of one who is standing over what is right and wrong, deciding what he's going to do on his own rather than obeying what God has told him to do, and thus uh, knowing right and wrong from the standpoint of disobedience. Okay? So his untested nature then would be forged into fixed character. So uh, that uh, that was... the goal here, in the crucible of experience. There were two hypothetical out- outcomes. Adam could have obeyed, received the knowledge of good and evil through obedience. Be confirmed in holiness, developed a non-passe pecare nature that is not possible to sin. In this state, he would have eaten of the tree of life and enjoyed his terrestrial paradise forever. Okay, That was one option. Or, secondly, he could disobey, receive experiential knowledge of good and evil through disobedience, be confirmed in sin, and develop a non-passe, non-picare nature that is not possible not to sin. And, lest he be confirmed absolutely in that state, he has to be whisked away uh, from this tree uh, so that he did not live forever in this horrible state. And so there are angels, of course, at the end, stationed around this tree in order to prevent Adam and Eve ever from getting back to this tree and thus being uh, being put forever into this, this horrible state. So what's the nature of the test? Well, the test is not about the tree. It's not as though its fruit contained super vegetative powers that could give Adam knowledge. I and mean, it's not like some sort of super orange on this tree or super apple. It was an ordinary little literal tree with ordinary fruit. Now, the knowledge of good and evil was not in the fruit itself, but in the act of eating the fruit. Okay, so that's that's where the knowledge of good and evil is, not because there was some sort of chemical in the in the apple that was going to give him knowledge. Adam and Eve had cognitive or descriptive knowledge of what good and evil were, but they had not experienced either. By opting not to eat, Adam and Eve could have gained experimental knowledge of the good by doing good, just as God himself had. 
Okay, he had experiential knowledge of good because he does good. That's why we call him a good God. Not only because he, in theory, is the standard of what is good and you know what is right and righteous and all that, but because he conforms to his own standard, he is a good God. Okay. But in this test was the inherent possibility that they might receive experimental knowledge of evil by doing evil. And so, incidentally, this promise that Satan gives to them that, you know, if you eat this, you'll be wise knowing good and evil, he was, he was kind of right. You know, that's, that's, that's part of the, the sneakiness, the cleverness of what he did. That was the test. Yes, you will become wise. You will know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, by experience. You just are experiencing on the wrong side. Okay? So what's the method here? Satan employs an ordinary snake as his mouthpiece. In the pre-fall state, apparently, snakes were equipped with great intelligence. It says here he was more crafty than the other animals. Okay, so... Uh, he also apparently had some sort of erect posture based on the fact that after the fall, he no longer had his erect posture, but scurried about on the ground, slithered about on the ground. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what that is. I mean, we, I don't know if you've, in, in, uh, when I was in Tanzania, I was made, I was acquainted with the, uh, the idea of cobras. I, I, they, they basically can go up and inch about on the last about a foot of their tail, and they can go up like this, and they'll they'll, they'll chase little animals into children, and you know, and they're, they're going along like this. And so, so perhaps we get a sense of what the snake might have been like. I don't know. That's that's actually a terrifying way of thinking about snakes. But, but it made me look over my shoulder all the time when I was in, when I was there. Okay. So apparently they had erect posture. So they were. I mean, the, the curse corrupted these snakes and made them these slithery, horrible creatures that they are today. The serpent's linguistic capabilities, however, should have been a tip-off here. You know, she should have realized that none of the animals talk, but now this snake is talking to her. So she should have figured out something was wrong. And so, what does this talking snake tell her? Incidentally, we don't have any statement here that this is Satan. We really don't have absolute certainty of who this is until we get to the book of Revelation, right? Where he's called the, the serpent, the great, the, the, the serpent of old Satan, and he's actually defined there. We have a pretty good idea, uh, but that's uh, where, where it's actually made certain for us. So the means is to first cast doubt, did God really say? Okay, and that really comes ahead of each of the uh, statements. He says, God really say this? That, that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And what he what he does here is in, 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 in not only casting doubt on what God said, but actually distorts a bit what God said. You must not eat from every tree in the garden. Now, in itself, this is not a lie. God had identified one tree that was not for consumption with the words, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden except one. But Satan restated God's command in a very negative way 
it sort of could be taken two ways, you know. Does God say that you can't eat from every tree? It's like you can't eat from the one tree. God told you you couldn't eat from all every tree? Well, there's one, okay? Um, and so he, he makes it sound like God is being cruel by denying one tree out of thousands, uh, but he makes it makes God seem bad for denying them a tree. Genesis 3, 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, there's truth here. By eating, Eve would have received experimental knowledge of good and evil. And in this sense, in some sense, that they would resemble God more. They would understand experientially what good and evil are, but the knowledge would not be exactly like God's, which is what he implies. The only way for her to have had the knowledge exactly as God had it was by not eating the fruit. Okay, so doubt first, distortion, and then denial. He says, you won't die. Well, God said, you will surely die. Satan says, you shall not surely die. Now, a case could be made for further distortion here because um, there is a... I mean, death is a complex concept here. And so it's not as though Eve just fell over dead uh, in a physical sense when she ate the uh, ate the fruit. So there is perhaps a sense of distortion here because it's true. She won't die in that sense. But she will die. Okay? But probably Satan is just really flat out lying here by denying the truth of a direct statement of God. God said, you shall surely die. Satan says, you surely shall not. Well... Uh, that's a direct contradiction. So this is the sequence that he goes through. And the appeal here is very clever. Just as Satan's ploy with Jesus and with all believers today, Satan uses a threefold appeal to deceive Eve. Now remember, Eve and Adam here, neither one has a sin nature yet. Okay? They're, they're very good, right? Uh, they don't have this bent to sin within them like the rest of us do. Everyone's born with original sin. But Adam and Eve did not have that. And so how does Satan appeal? Well, if I can put it this way, and this is, a, this is some, some phraseology I've learned, uh, he, he appealed to, uh, her, to her appetites and uh, her good appetites to excess. Okay? So first... He makes an appeal to physical appetites and selfish lust. The good, okay? It was good for food. Yes, it was. It was It was an apple, and it had nutrients in it, and it was good for food. Uh, and ironically, even in the eating of it, her body was nourished by the eating of it. This is exactly the command that Satan gives to Jesus to command that these stones become bread. Okay, and there's a little bit of complexity here. Probably he's trying to say, use your use your divine powers in a selfish way here. Make these stones become bread. And of course, the the uh, the appeal here to 
Jesus was much more severe than the one to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have been living in a garden in which all of their needs are immediately met. They had all the food they wanted. Just not that tree. Where Jesus had been, you know, he'd been fasting for 40 days. So you can imagine he's extraordinarily hungry. So the temptation for our Lord was even greater than it was for Adam and Eve because of the condition. This is also what we find uh, Satan appealing to us today. We have the lust of the flesh. Okay? And, uh, you know, and that's, that's the fact is that that's that's the complexity of it. You know, you say, well, that's that's a fleshful lust. And, 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 and in the right context, that's good. But in the wrong context, it's bad. And so there's, there's that, that, and so Satan uses that, that uh, confusion there uh, to take us out regularly. Okay? There's a picture. Yes. Secondly, there's an appeal to aesthetic appreciation and selfish power. That is the beautiful. It was a delight to the eyes. And it was. Must, must have been a masterful apple or whatever fruit it was. Probably bigger and more luscious and sweeter and more perfect than anything you can find at Kroger or even if you went to that roadside stand in Fresno. You know, it's, it's, it was, it was a, it was a good piece of fruit. It was beautiful. And God has given to her an aesthetic sense. She knows what beauty is. She pursues it as we ought, as we all ought to. Same thing. Satan shows to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all these things that you can have, all the all the grandeur of the world to be yours. And what is our temptation? Well, it's the lust of the eyes. Okay. Again, we can we can be compelled by something that is quite beautiful that's just not ours to have. It's not ours to take, and we envy. And we take and we, we steal and we and we commit all kinds of fornications because it was beautiful. And then thirdly here, there's an appeal to social acceptance and selfish pride. The true. And I say the selective so you've got you've got here the good, the beautiful, and the true. And so what the uh, the appeal here is, is that you get to be the arbiter of what's right and wrong. Okay, and that's that's really what Adam and Eve are after. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to be the arbiters of what is true, what is good and beautiful. And so he says here, this fruit is desirable to make you wise. And it would. They, they would have more information in their heads. Uh, once once this event happened. Same thing happens here in Matthew. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, and the angels will lift you up on your, uh, in their hands. You will have social acceptance, and people will be amazed at what you do after you've thrown yourself down, and the angels, everyone's going to cheer for you, Jesus. Well, he's like, That's, the point is not just to get cheers. Uh, there's a there's a context for those cheers that I'm looking for, and uh, we're also 
we also face the same kind of, of, of test here with the pride of life. Okay? And so these three things come together, and while Jesus holds firm, and we uh, so often fail, Adam and Eve just total, totally lost it. Adam lived in Edenic conditions where all his physical appetites were fully satiated. He had authority over the whole world and where the created universe gladly owned him as their king. But he sinned because he thought he could have even more without accountability to God. He wanted to have everything that God had in addition to everything that God had given to him. On the, on the contrary, Jesus Christ by right should have had all that Adam had and more... But even when the enjoyment of these privileges were temporarily withheld from him, he refused to sin by acquiring them by any means other than from the hand of God. And so that's that's the sin. And so the result then is is cataclysmic. Any questions here on the test itself as we move then to the uh, the results of the failed test? Okay, so the results are manifold. First, for Adam and Eve, they experience spiritual death, which is seen here in Genesis 3.8. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That is, they were cut off from the life of God. Okay, so uh, what, what, we should back up and remember what uh, death is. Death is always a form of separation. Physical death is the separation of the body from the spirit, so the immaterial from the immaterial portions of a person. Spiritual death is the, is the separation of the individual from God. Okay, Not in an absolute sense, and that could never happen, actually, because God is everywhere. Nonetheless, there is this string that is placed between them, a hostility that exists now between man and God, which we describe as spiritual death. Okay, So they were cut off from the life of God, and instead of desiring, loving, daily fellowship with God, they actually sought to avoid him. And once they have this conversation, it, it starts in sort of nasty tones, right? So alienation and, in fact, outright hostility toward God. Okay, So reconciliation is now necessary. Physical death occurs as well. And, and we find this wrapped up in the curse. You will return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So physical death takes place. Um, and, uh, in fact, physical death begins the moment uh, the fruit is eaten. Deterioration begins. So Adam lived on physically after he ate the fruit, Nonetheless, both this passage and 1 Corinthians 15 indicate that physical death may be attributed to Adam's sin. In Adam all die. It's probably best to, to take this word in that day, in the day that you eat of it, is actually something of a, of a Hebrew idiom here. Uh, probably means as surely as you eat, you will die. Um, uh, so the, the, we've really got two options here with this. I know this is this has been something of a, of a problem text over the years. You know, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, he ate of it and did die. And so, is this a lie? What 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 happens here? There's two possibilities. One is that the seeds of mortality were 
were sown and he begins to die that very day. Or we actually have the, a greater probability here that this, this, phrase, this phrase, in the day that you eat of it, and we have some good reason to believe this, there's actual uh, use, Hebrew usage, that this is something of an idiom. As sure as you eat, you will die. Uh, so it's probably, so perhaps it's not a statement at all about this happening on that very day in, a, in an absolute sense. But I'll let you, uh, parse through those, those options here. I've, I've taken the idiomatic sense myself. They did become spiritually dead at that point. Though. They were, they were spiritually dead immediately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the seeds of mortality were sown. Uh, but they didn't actually, obviously, drop over physically dead at that moment. Um, but I don't think we have reason, because of that, to doubt uh, what, this, what the scripture said. They lose dominion. Next. Genesis three seventeen to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food. So man is not dethroned. He's still the king of the earth. Nonetheless, his practical ability to rule was very much hampered by thorns, thistles, and all sorts of sweat-inducing resistance from the created realm. The ground became hard and difficult to work with and such. We also find that uh, there's some anatomical degeneration, particularly uh, given to the women, to Eve, and to women ever since. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Apparently, childbirth would have been painless had Adam and Eve not sinned. Instead, God effected structural changes in Eve's body that resulted in severe pain during the delivery of children. It's, it's rather interesting to look at both of these things. It, 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 it attacked the very core of dignity and the, 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 the primary function and source of joy for men and women, respectively, is just snuffed out. Okay, Men should... Uh, the, the idea, the, the, the implication here is that men, I, uh, specifically, should great have find great dignity and great delight in going out and and and, and doing some hard work and, and you know, feeling those muscles work and you know and you know you know, just, that's that's how men are, that's how men find their great dignity in place in society or or ideally and women are to ideally find their place in society by giving birth to children and perpetuating the race. I mean, they're the, they're the, they're the ones who they rock their hand, rocks the cradle, and rules the world, right? And, that, and that's, 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 that's where, where both men and women should have had the greatest sources of delight, and it's made miserable for, for them both, right? They're also expelled from the garden. God banishes them from the Garden of Eden Eden, to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. 
The last line of this verse indicates that the reason for the expulsion from the garden was to prevent Adam and Eve from eating of this tree of life. Were they to have eaten of it after sinning, the suggestion seems to be, it's never stated, that they would have been immortalized forever in their sinful condition, which would have been horrible. Where does the tree of life end up showing up next? In Revelation, yes, in the new, in the, in the, in the new heaven and new earth, it, it 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 grows to prodigious proportions. It's a, it's an enormous tree, uh, but apparently uh, we can freely eat of it at that point because we will be in a state uh, where we want to be preserved. And then there's a relationship change between Adam and Eve. Your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. There's some debate as to exactly what's meant by that. But probably what we have here is a statement that Adam's natural leadership becomes impersonal, impassive, even abusive. Okay? And, uh, you know, perhaps some of your women say, yep, that's the way he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Eve's natural submission gives way to perpetual resentment, independence, and lust for the acquisition of functional equality with her husband. Okay, and so now the men are saying that's right. So, and so, and so, so this this is this is the source of all the tensions, or a great many of the tensions that exist in marriages today. These tendencies feed each other and account for nearly all marital problems in the world today. Okay, so all of this happens because they sin, and then the human race also suffers. Okay, in addition to the perpetuation of these factors. In the previous section, to the descendants of Adam and Eve, all mankind also suffers the possibility of eternal death, that is, the irrevocable confirmation of spiritual death for those who fail to exercise faith in God that's looming out there. We are all born in a state of spiritual uh, death, and that could be made permanent. I mean, we, we, are, we are in a very precarious spot when we're born, uh, because we... The, that this this condition could be rendered permanent at any point. The imputation of Adam's sin, guilt, and a capital sentence are extended to all of us as well. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And the genetic inheritance of sin pollution as well. We're going to talk about the distinction between these. Uh, There's imputed guilt an inherited sin nature. These together uh, come to, uh, co- come together to, talk to 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 form what we sometimes call original sin. Okay, the imputed guilt of Adam, the inherited corruption uh, that is inherited, um, and those two uh, combine together to give us what we call original sin. By the way, original sin is not the first sin that Adam and Eve committed, but rather it is the state in which we are born. We are born in original sin. That is, we have imputed guilt and an inherited uh, unrighteousness. And this is the state in which we are born. We are, we are, we originally bear, we originate in this state, if we can put it that way. Okay? So through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin and death spreads to all mankind. There's also some judgment for the serpent, which seems a little weird to us, perhaps. Snakes apparently underwent some sort of anatomical change too, and were condemned to slither about forever as a special object of degradation and contempt. And it's just amazing that <laughs> just about it, 
only some very unusual people just don't get a little bit shuddery when uh, when they see when they see snakes slithering around. Um, I'm not sure what it says about you if you like snakes, but <laughs> but but it goes beyond just the snake. Of course, Satan, the apparent power behind the snake's guile, was given a death sentence to be administered later by the seed of the woman. And then all creation in general suffers as well. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we know that the whole world, the whole creation, has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And the context here suggests that once we are resurrected, that once this this is reversed... Uh, then the rest of creation gets to undergo this sort of reversal of the curse as well, um, in large part at the beginning of the millennium, uh, but not entirely. The curse is completely rolled back at the beginning of the millennium. Nonetheless, there's awful, there's a lot, awful lot of great things that happen, right? You know, during the millennium, you can, you know, the, the lion lies down with a lamb, and wolf, and uh, and you can, you know, a little kid can put their hand in a cobra's nest, and be fine, you know. They will not harm in all of God's holy mountain. So there's something of a of a, of a peel back of the results of the curse, uh, but that's then made uh, complete at the uh, at the beginning of the eternal state. So thorns and thistles were introduced into the plant kingdom. Apparently, were not there originally, and death was introduced into the animal kingdom as well. In all probability, carnivorous instincts begin to uh, affect animals as well. Okay, so we end this section in rather down note. Okay, because we're 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 going into the doctrine of sin next, and, uh, and hopefully we see that there is a light at the end of this tunnel. Um, and I know this this may not be the most exciting thing you've come for is to talk about sin. Nonetheless, we don't know ourselves and we don't know our proclivities. Uh, then we're we're going to be we're always going to be vulnerable so I think it's a good thing for us to study so that's be our plan uh, starting next week any final questions here okay